0: continue our study of Paul's teaching on the rapture and go to two Thessalonians. Verse one says, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Clearly the subject under discussion is the rapture. Verse two, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit, which is a false prophecy, or a message a false teaching, or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord, the tribulation, has come. Remember that in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul clearly defined the day of the Lord as meaning the tribulation, and it makes no sense that he changed the meaning of this expression in his second letter. Many assume here that the day of the Lord refers to Christ's second coming in glory. But that makes no sense, because the idea that the second coming had already happened would have been silly. Jesus taught that when he returns, the whole earth will see him in his glory. Paul's disciples were well taught and wouldn't have been disturbed by such reports. Some translations try and make, it, make sense of this by translating it as that the day of the Lord is at hand. That is, it's about to happen. But this violates the normal meaning of the Greek word used here. Also, the day of the Lord here cannot mean the rapture. For they were not troubled that the rapture had come because it obviously hadn't come. Neither were they troubled that the rapture was about to come because they would have been very happy about that, not troubled. The only meaning that makes sense and is consistent with other scriptures is that the day of the Lord here is the tribulation. They were being troubled by people saying that the tribulation had started. Some even used Paul's name in vain, saying he'd written a letter to that effect. Naturally, they were troubled by this, for Paul had taught them that the rapture would be before the tribulation. But now this hope was disturbed by this report that they were now in the tribulation, without being delivered from it by the rapture as they'd expected to be. In the next verses, Paul puts them right by affirming the pre-tribulation rapture. First he told them not to believe this false message. In verse 3 it says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for that day, that's the day of the Lord, the tribulation, will not come until the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, much confusion has arisen around the word translated apostasy, which affects the whole meaning of this verse. Other translations have it as falling away. The falling away. It's the Greek word apostasia. Its basic meaning is simply departure. In fact, the oldest English translations translated it as departure. Now in 1 Timothy 4, Paul does talk about a departure or falling away from the faith in the last days, referring to apostasy. Perhaps the translators assumed he was talking about the same thing here and so translated it apostasy. But this is an unjustified assumption. It does not say that the departure, in verse 3 here, is a departure from the faith. It simply calls it the departure. Paul is talking about a specific departure, but he doesn't tell us what this departure is and what it's from. Therefore, he thinks it should be obvious to the readers, as if we should know which departure he's talking about. He can't have assumed that they knew it was the departure from the faith that he had described to Timothy, as one Timothy hadn't even been written yet. Since he doesn't specify what this departure is, the rules of interpretation dictate that we should look in the context of the previous verses to see what this departure is. Since he doesn't explain it in the verse, it must be clear from the context. So let's translate this verse in a way that helps us to keep an open mind on this issue. For the day will not come unless the departure comes first. If we look in the context, it becomes obvious what this departure is. Not only is there a departure there, but Paul had underlined the fact that it was the main subject under discussion. That's in verse 1, where he says, Now, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. What departure is he talking about? Clearly it's the departure of the church from the earth in the rapture. So we can now translate verse 3 as follows. Let no one in any way deceive you, for the tribulation will not come unless the rapture comes first, unless the the departure of the church happens first. It's a plain statement of the pre-tribulation rapture. The whole passage now makes sense. He's confronting the false teaching that they were in the tribulation by saying that was impossible because the tribulation cannot start until the departure of the church. Clearly, the presence of the church on earth prevents the tribulation from happening. And Paul explains why this is the case in the next few verses. We know from other scriptures that the start of the tribulation is marked by the rise of Antichrist on the world stage. Daniel 9.27 says that Antichrist is revealed at the start of the seven years when he makes a covenant with Israel. When the first seal is opened in Revelation 6, he's the rider on the white horse going forth to conquer. So the tribulation starts with the Antichrist being revealed. So the Antichrist will only be revealed after the rapture. And it also says this in 2 Thessalonians 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for that day the tribulation will not come until the departure comes first, and then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition. They were worried that the tribulation had started, which means they would have to face the Antichrist. Paul's answer was that the tribulation will only start and the Antichrist will only be revealed after the departure of the church, so they won't be there for the tribulation or Antichrist. Thus the rapture happens first, followed by the tribulation when Antichrist will be revealed. In verse 4, Paul describes what Antichrist will do when he becomes world ruler at mid-tribulation who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Next, he explains why the Antichrist can't be revealed until the church is removed. It's because the Holy Spirit, through the church, is a powerful restraining force against the spirit of Antichrist. Verse 6 says, And now you know what restrains him, the Antichrist, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains him will do so until he's taken out the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed. There is a restrainer, you see, holding back the revelation of Antichrist until he's taken out the way. Paul does not directly identify the restrainer by name, which means it should be obvious from the context, as good communication requires. Other theories, such as the restrainer being human government, have little basis in the context. Remember from verse 1 that the main subject of the whole passage is the rapture, the taking away of the church from the earth. Therefore, when verse 6 and 7 talk about the restrainer being taken out of the way, it must refer to the church. This makes perfect sense, for the church is God's agent in the earth, set in opposition to the spirit of Antichrist and holding it back. By definition, the spirit of Antichrist tries to oppose, deny and replace the truth of Christ. It is the church that is called to proclaim and exalt Christ in direct opposition to the spirit of Antichrist. So what restrains the Antichrist now is the church, or more precisely, the Holy Spirit through the church. That's why the restrainer is described as both a what in verse 6 and a he in verse 7. When the church is removed, then the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit through the church will also cease. However, the Spirit is omnipresent God, and so he'll continue to be present on the earth, enabling many to be saved in the tribulation. These verses fit perfectly with verse 3, which said that a departure of the church must happen first, and then the Antichrist will be revealed. Verse 7 and 8 says that the restrainer must be taken out of the way first, and then the Antichrist will be revealed. Both verses talk about the removal of something, and in both cases, the result of this removal is the revelation of the Antichrist. So they must be talking about the same event. In other words, the departure of the church from the earth is the same as the taking away of the restrainer. Paul's logic now is clear. First he said the Antichrist cannot be revealed until the church is removed in the rapture, verse 3. Then he explained why this was the case. The Church functions as the Restrainer, holding back the revelation of Antichrist, so the Antichrist can only be revealed once the Church is taken out of the way, and that's verse 6-8. to Once the removal of the Restrainer is identified as the rapture of the Church, then everything fits together perfectly, and it becomes clear that this passage teaches a pre-tribulation rapture. Any interpretation of this passage should be tested against verse 1, which says the rapture is the main subject. Alternative explanations don't even mention the rapture after verse 1, showing that something is wrong. The passage finishes by describing Antichrist's destruction at the second coming of Christ, verse 8. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. We now go on to the teaching of Peter and see that he also taught a pre-tribulation rapture. He speaks of the morning star, which is a picture of the rapture. 2 Peter 1.19, he says, We have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention to, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. This describes three lights or manifestations of Christ. First, his light shines through the prophetic word. If we're living by the light of God's word, we'll not walk in darkness. Peter says we must live by this word until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. There are two different future manifestations of Christ's glory mentioned here. First, the day dawns at sunrise, when the sun lights up the whole world. This is a picture of the second coming of Christ, when all will see him in his glory. Malachi 4.2 describes the return of Christ as the rising of the sun of righteousness with healing in his wings. But shortly before the dawn, when it's still dark, there's another light that rises into view called the morning star. It's actually the planet Venus or the star Sirius and it's a sign heralding the coming dawn. Only those who are awake will see this light. In Revelation 22.16 Jesus said, I am the bright morning star. So the morning star is a manifestation of the glory of Jesus. Also in Revelation 2.28, Jesus promised believers, I will give him the morning star. So again, this is a manifestation that is only given to believers. Also notice that Peter says, the morning star rises in your hearts. That is, in the hearts of believers. This is different from the glory of Christ covering the whole earth. This is a manifestation of Christ's glory that originates in the hearts of believers so while the world is sleeping in the darkness before the sunrise when all see Christ's glory there will be a special manifestation of his glory given to believers only he will appear to them as the morning star and his glory will arise in their hearts so the morning star speaks of the glory of Christ manifested to and in believers in the rapture before the second coming his glory will be manifested within us and shine out of let's now see how the book of Revelation confirms also the pre-tribulation rapture. In Revelation 1.19, Jesus gave John an outline of the whole book. He says, first, write the things which you've seen, and that's the vision of Christ in chapter 1. Second, and write the things which are now. This is the church age, described in chapters 2 and 3, that is described by his seven letters to the seven churches. And then third, he says, write the things which shall take place after these things. These are the things that will take place after the church age, which is chapters 4 to 22, which include the tribulation, the second coming, the millennium and the eternal state. The seven letters of Revelation 2 and 3 give Christ guidance, warnings and promises for the believers in the church age. In particular, Revelation 3.10 clearly promises the church a pre-trib rapture, He says, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test all those who dwell on the earth. And that's a description of the tribulation. Some say we will go through the tribulation, and here God promises to protect us while we're in the tribulation. But many believers will be killed by the Antichrist in the tribulation, so I'm not sure what kind of protection they're talking about. Notice he does not just keep us from the test or trial in the sense of protecting us in it. He says he will keep us from the very hour of trial, from the very time period itself. This trial will come on all those who dwell on the earth. So the only way to be delivered from it is to be removed from the earth. He must do this by means of the pre-tribulation rapture. In fact, in the next verse, Jesus says he'll do this by means of the rapture. Verse 11, he said, I'm coming quickly. That's the rapture. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. Straight after the rapture is the judgment seat of Christ for rewards. Now, to confirm that the church age ends at the end of chapter 3, and the things that take place after the church age start in chapter 4, let's go to Revelation 4.1, where John is called up by a trumpet into heaven, which is symbolic of the rapture. Revelation 4.1. After these things, that is the seven letters describing the church age, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. These words are clearly introducing a new section of the book. Using the very same phrase as in chapter one, verse nineteen, where John is told that he'll be shown things that will take place after the church age, therefore, Revelation four one onwards must reveal events that will take place after the church age. As we read on, we see that Revelation four to nineteen describe the events of the tribulation in great detail. John sees the throne of God in heaven, and he sees twenty four elders sitting on thrones. Revelation four four. Round the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. Verse 10 says, The twenty-four elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne, and will worship him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne. The presence of these elders proves that the church is already in heaven before the tribulation begins, since it is the opening of the book with seven seals in Revelation 5 which initiates the events of the tribulation on earth. Now an elder is a term that always describes a man, a man of maturity and authority. Angels are never called elders. Neither do angels sit on thrones, whereas men do. Angels are servants, whereas we will reign with Christ and judge angels so these elders must be men. Their song in Revelation 5, 8-10, reveals what this larger group is. The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, having golden vials full of odours, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the book and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred, tongue, people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. First of all, notice that the elders sing about how they have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Therefore, they are redeemed, resurrected and rewarded men. Second, they represent a larger group of people who have also been redeemed and who are from every nation and who are kings and priests and who are destined to reign on the earth. This is clearly a description of the church, so these elders must represent the whole church. Another confirmation, their men, is that they call themselves royal priests, which are men representing other men to God. We even see them acting as priests, presenting the prayers of the saints before the throne. Only a human being can truly identify with and represent other men. The fact there are 24 points to David's organization of priests into 24 divisions, with a chief priest over each division. This indicates these elders are the chief priests over a larger royal priesthood. There is no biblical basis for identifying these elders as angels. They are resurrected men who represent the church. Thus, the church is present in heaven before the tribulation has begun. Moreover, in the description of the events of the tribulation on earth in Revelation 6-18, to the church is not mentioned once. She must be absent from the earth. Instead, in Revelation 7, we see the 144,000 Jewish evangelists anointed to spearhead the gospel during the tribulation. We only see the church again in Revelation 19, verse 7-9, just before the second coming. And where is the church then? Not on earth, but in heaven, with Christ clothed in white shining linen. Now she's called the wife. Thus the rapture, judgment seat of Christ and the wedding must have already taken place before the second coming. It's not the same event. Then in Revelation 19, to 16, we see the church return to earth from heaven with Christ at his second coming as part of the armies of heaven, following him and riding on white horses. And again, she's described as being clothed in shining white linen. Then in Revelation 24, After the second coming of Christ it says, then I saw thrones and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. This is the resurrected church. Then it describes a separate group of believers who had not yet been resurrected. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This describes the resurrection of the tribulation martyrs killed by the Antichrist in the tribulation. Now if the tribulation was just part of the church age, and these believers were part of the church, they'd have been resurrected at the same time as the rest of the church, rather than as a separate group. These tribulation martyrs were not part of the rapture, therefore they must have been saved after the rapture and then been killed by the Antichrist in the tribulation, which is why they have a separate resurrection after the second coming. This again confirms a pre-tribulation rapture. Thus the book of Revelation consistently agrees with a pre-tribulation rapture. There are four main issues on when the rapture will happen in relation to the second coming of Christ. Interestingly, the first three views acknowledge the power of the wrath argument, that the church has been promised deliverance from divine wrath, and so they agree that the church will be raptured before his wrath is poured out on the earth but they differ from each other on when God starts to move in judgment during the tribulation. Therefore, the first three views all see the coming of Christ as being in two phases. First, he will come for his church in the rapture, and then months or years later, he will come with his church to the earth in power and glory. This concept of two phases is supported by the great differences in the descriptions of the rapture and the second coming, indicating they are two distinct events rather than two different aspects of the same event. This is similar to the Old Testament prophets, seeing both the first and second comings of Christ. Often prophecies of the second coming come right after prophecies of the first coming, as if it might all be part of one big event. Nowhere does it explicitly say in the Old Testament it's two comings separated by a long time, but now it's obvious to us that the two visions are so different they must be two separate events. Moreover, there are certain aspects that can't be harmonized unless there are two phases to the second coming with a significant time interval in between. One is the description of life before the rapture is going on normally compared to the description of life before the second coming, which is anything but normal. Everyone will be saying, I'm getting out of here. Another difference is that one set of scriptures which relate to the rapture teach imminence that the Lord could come at any time. However, another set of scriptures which relate to the second coming speak of a series of signs that must happen before the Lord can come, contradicting imminence. Some prophecies of his coming say that no one will know when it will happen, but anyone living in the last seven years will be able to predict from the signs the exact day the Lord will return. The only way to reconcile this is by having two separate events, the first, the rapture being imminent, and then the second, the second coming, not being imminent, but coming after a set of signs, namely the events of the tribulation. When Jesus returns to judge the earth, he will remove all the unbelievers from the earth by death as the parable of the tares and the judgment of the sheep and goats makes clear, and as in the days of Noah. Now, if the rapture happens at the same time as the second coming, then all the believers will be in their new bodies, and that will leave no one to populate the millennium. Another point is that a number of important events must take place in heaven after the rapture before the second coming. First, the judgment seat of Christ, followed by our presentation to Christ as his glorious bride followed by the wedding itself, the wedding ceremony. And all this points to a significant time interval rather than a simple U-turn in the atmosphere. So let's look at the four views. Number one, the pre-tribulation view says that the rapture will be before the seven-year tribulation. It's the consequence of following the keys of Bible prophecy, such as taking the prophetic scriptures literally, seeing the church age as a mystery that's distinct from Israel, and seeing the whole tribulation as a special time of divine judgment. One major strength of the pre-trib view is that it's the only view that upholds imminence, which is a major doctrine of the New Testament. Imminence, says the Lord, could come suddenly for us at any time. So we're to look for him, wait for him, watch for his coming, living every day in the expectancy that he could come any time and that we will find ourselves standing before him, giving an account for our lives. Therefore, this inspires us to holiness and evangelism because we want to be found in fellowship with him and faithfully serving him when he comes. And indeed, many New Testament scriptures motivate us using the doctrine of imminence. None of the other views preserve imminence, because if the rapture is at the end of the tribulation, then I know that Jesus can't come for at least seven years. Likewise, if the rapture is in the middle of the tribulation, then he can't come for at least another three and a half years. The second view is the mid-tribulation view, and this says the rapture will happen in the middle of the tribulation. They say that the first half of the tribulation is just the wrath of man and Satan, but the wrath of God only happens in the second half of the tribulation but there's little positive evidence of a rapture event happening at mid-tribulation. They just point to the catching up of the two witnesses at mid-tribulation as a symbol of the rapture of the church. They also point out that the seventh and last trumpet in the book of Revelation is blown at mid-tribulation, and that the rapture happens at the last trump. So they deduce that the seventh trumpet is the rapture trumpet. However, the seven trumpets of Revelation are blown by angels, and they release judgments, whereas the rapture trumpet is called the Trump of God, blown by the Lord himself to call the church to rise and meet him in the air. The third view is the pre-wrath view, which says that the rapture happens near the end of the tribulation, but before the seven bowls of wrath, and God only starts moving in judgment when he pours out these bowls. This is a relatively new view and quite complex, actually, when it comes to understanding all its details. Its key mistake is not understanding that the whole of the tribulation is called the day of the Lord and that God directly intervenes in judgment right from the start of the tribulation so that the whole tribulation is a time of judgment and not just the final bowls of wrath. Revelation is clear that the events on earth in the tribulation are initiated from heaven by the seven seals and seven trumpets as well as the seven bowls. In fact it is Christ who initiates the tribulation and all its woes by breaking the seals in Revelation 6. Later when we see the meaning of the scroll with seven seals it will be obvious that Christ is moving forcefully in judgment against the world system right from the start of the tribulation. The fourth view is the post tribulation view which says that the rapture and the second coming happen at the same time. As Jesus returns, we'll rise to meet him in the air, and then we'll do a U-turn and come back with him to the earth. To support this idea that it's all part of a single event, they give an excellent analogy. In those days, when a king came to a city, its leading citizens came out to meet him, and then they would return and enter the city with the king. So this is a picture of going up to meet Jesus in the rapture, and then immediately returning to the earth with him. But what if the city is in rebellion to the king? Those loyal to the king will go out to greet him. But he will not be able to immediately enter the city. He'll have to start a siege to overcome his enemies and forcefully recapture the city. And that's exactly what happens in the tribulation. We will rise to meet King Jesus in the rapture, but the world system rejects him as king. And so over the next seven years, there's a state of war. When Christ opens the book, which is the title deed of the earth, he is asserting his right as owner to possess, to repossess the earth, and evict the evil tenants. He wages war by first withdrawing his mercy from the various areas of the world system, by pulling the plug on them, and second by releasing direct judgments from heaven, as with the trumpets. This is how to understand the tribulation, and this is why he will withdraw his beloved bride first. Now Jesus has the power to destroy his enemies in one day. So why take seven years before he finally finishes the job at his second coming? It's because he wants to give them a final chance to be saved. By having seven years of increasing bombardments, constantly increasing in intensity, he creates the conditions whereby as many people as possible can repent and be saved in the tribulation.